Amen. Please turn with me to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. back in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Briefly, I thought the other day of just maybe getting some bumper stickers. We can put them all in our cars. Maybe t-shirts. Vanity. All is vanity. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're reading verses 1 through 10. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that God has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we... Lord, as we prayed earlier... The only reason this matters is because you are God and you have redeemed us. Lord, and you have something to say. And so we pray, God, that you would take the truths of your precious word and that you would plant them deep into our hearts. Help us to understand life and meaning according to what your word says. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some might consider that one of the strangest things about being a Christian is that you sort of tend to think or talk a lot about death. I mean, if you think about it, we tend to sing songs that have to do with death. We heed the words of a man who once said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And even as we turn to the scriptures, we're focusing on a book that seems to be fixated on the topic of death. But you might say, well, that's your fault. I mean, we would not have chosen Ecclesiastes. You're welcome. 
But the reason why, if that is a critique of ours, that we tend to be fixated on the topic of death, we only do so because we are fixated on the death of Christ through which we receive eternal life. If we are fixated on the topic of death, it is because we see death not as the end of our lives, but as a gateway to eternal life, to a glorious life with Christ. The theologian Carl Truman once said that much of life can be explained as an attempt to deny or escape from death. And indeed, many people spend their lives trying to deny the reality or run away from death. And yet it is the most common event, probably the most common event, that happens to all men. And it's a topic that most people would neither not think or talk about. But how you view death informs how you live. How you think about death, whether you deny it, or how you come to accept it will determine how you live. And this is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is getting at in this section. And to this, the preacher would say several things to us. And one, or firstly, he would say something concerning the security of the righteous. So it's been a while since we've been back in the book of Ecclesiastes. But the preacher, if you might remember from the beginning past or beginning chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, this is a man who has most likely was King Solomon and had honor, wealth, status. He did not keep from his heart anything that it desired because he had the resources and the means to get whatever he wanted. And so these are the words coming from a man who has really experimented with life, was considered life, and he comes to present to us his conclusions now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and elsewhere in the Scriptures, evil can mean different things depending on the context. In the book of Ecclesiastes, evil can mean at least two different things. And he talks about evil in this passage. Evil, as which we, one form of evil, or one definition of evil that we are most familiar with is sort of the moral kind of evil. Like those things are, that, that are detestable to God, that are reprehensible to God that have to do with morality, those things that people might say, those things that are unimaginable or unthinkable perhaps, those things we might consider to be forms of evil, and that is certainly true. But the Scriptures broaden our definition of evil. I saw one definition of evil that actually defines it this way. It says that evil is anything that is not in harmony with the divine order of God. So anything that deviates from the narrow path, anything that is not consistent with God's divinely created design, according to the Scriptures, is considered a form of evil. Now, evil can mean something else as well, depending on the context. Evil can mean a kind of tragedy or a kind of suffering or affliction. So, for example, if you're familiar with the story of Job, who had everything, had the wealth, and had the large family, and then it was all taken away, he lost everything but his wife, and how does Job view his suffering? He says in Job 2, verses 10 through 11, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, 
They came each from his own place, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. So Job's suffering was a form of evil. It's not that God was evil in permitting this suffering to come upon Job, for God is not sinful and God himself is not evil, but the calamity that he experienced was a form of evil. And this is consistent with other places in the book of Ecclesiastes. So for example, the preacher in Ecclesiastes would say that someone who has worked hard and has produced many fruits of his labor and yet cannot enjoy them, but enjoyed by somebody else, is a form of evil. He says in Ecclesiastes 2.21, Sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone else who did not toil or work for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. He says elsewhere that hoarding evil and even making stupid investments is a form of evil. Ecclesiastes 5.13, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. So it's even considered evil that this individual lost everything, and now he has nothing to pass on to his children. The inability to enjoy wealth is a form of evil. Ecclesiastes 6.2, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, and it is a grievous evil. And here, death is also seen as a form of evil. It is not that death in itself, as in it snuffs out the life of a person. Yes, that is a form of evil. But in addition to that, the preacher would also say that what is also evil about death itself is that it comes for everyone. That it's indiscriminate, whether you're good or bad, religious or not religious, whether you're good, full of good works or full of bad works, whether you're wise or foolish. Death comes for everyone. A dream that is most common to people, or a dream that most people have in common is the kind of dream, you probably have done this before, where you're being chased, you're running somewhere, running frantically, you're running from someone, but you have no idea who you're running from. If for some reason it doesn't occur to you to turn around and see who's running after you, but the one who is chasing you seems to be this faceless individual. That's sort of what death is like. Death is this faceless individual who is running after its subject. And many people will spend their lives running from this faceless entity, running in the pursuit of pleasure, running in the pursuits of sex, running in the pursuit of wealth and money and status and honor and success. The life consists of running away from this faceless demon, but it always catches up. But notice what verse 1 says. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. What is he examining? What is he laying to heart? How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So I was thinking about that death comes for all. He has this positive thing to say about those who are wise and righteous, that they are in the hand of God. Is that not where you want to be? In the hand of God. So the question is, who are the wise? Who are the righteous? Right? How do you get yourself to be in the hand of God? 
And the teacher of Ecclesiastes would say, it is the person who enjoys God's gifts moderately, in contentment. It is the person who acknowledges that God is the giver of all good things. He would say that the righteous and the wise person who is in the hand of God is the person who walks in the fear of the Lord. The person who makes God the first person of their heart, the person who embraces God, the person who loves God, the person who reveres and respects God, that is the person who is wise and righteous. The NASB translation says, whether it is love or hate, anything awaits them. So we don't know what's coming for the most part, and for the most part, we have no control of what's coming, the good or bad, love or hate. But the person who is wise and righteous because they're in the hand of God have no fear of what's coming because they are in the security of the hand of God. It reflects a personal involvement in the life of the wise and righteous. And in this way, there's sort of a contrast here between the impersonal thing that is death that comes for everyone and the hand of God that speaks personally. And so these, it's like two different hands, a careless hand and a careful hand. A hand that does not love and a hand that loves. Which one would you rather be in? So you do well to be wise and righteous by walking in the fear of the Lord. The very hand of God that permitted Job's suffering is also the very hand that restored him. The very hand of God that smote his son on the cross for, the, for our sins is the very hand that also raised his son from the dead. I would rather be in that hand than only in the death and the hand of death alone. Jonathan Edwards, which which is a he's most most people who know Jonathan Edwards sort of know him as this impersonal figure, which is kind of a which is a kind of a shame because he it's a person who had these strong affections for the Lord and the gospel, but it was also a family man. He loved his family. He loved his children. So when his daughter Mary uh, moved from the home, she was married, started a new life together. And by the way, she actually moved to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. But starting her new life together, leaving the family that she's always known all her life, and starting a new life, which is always scary, Knowing this, her father, Jonathan Edwards, wrote to her and said, Dear child, you may well think that it is natural for a parent to be concerned for a child. That's so great a distance, so far out of you, and so far out of the reach of communication. Where if you should be taken with any dangerous sickness that should issue in death, you might probably be in your grave before we could hear of your danger. But yet my greatest concern is for your soul's good. Though you are at so great a distance from us, yet God is everywhere. 
You are much out of the reach of our care, but you are every moment in his hands. We have not the comfort of seeing you, but he sees you. His eye is always upon you. And if you may but be sensibly near to him and have his gracious presence, tis no matter though you are far distant from us. I had rather you should remain hundreds of miles distant from us and have God near to you by his Spirit than to have you always with us and live at a distance from God. The wise and righteous are always in the hand of God, and God is always closer than he seems or feels or appears. The next thing the preacher has to say is concerning the life of the living and the life of the dead. In verse 3, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in the hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. He says, he who is joined with all the living has hope. It's hard to define what he means by hope, especially considering that where he is at in salvation history at that point in time, he, as, long, as well as many others, have no full orb understanding of eternal life, not in the way that you and I understand it thanks to the gospel in the New Testament. But perhaps Proverbs 10.28 sheds some light on what he understands by hope, for he writes in Proverbs, the hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. So hope seems to be sort of this positive outcome. So giving his wisdom and knowledge, what he knows about the word of the Lord, is that for those who are wise and righteous, they can expect some kind of hopeful outcome, but for those who do not walk in the fear of the Lord, but are wicked and unrighteous, they should not expect a hopeful outcome. And it probably doesn't extend beyond that. Now, something else to remember as we consider this passage and the entirety of Ecclesiastes is that the preacher wrote the book of Ecclesiastes with the skeptic and the secular person in mind. Because he's, what he's trying to persuade us of, what he's trying to persuade his readers of is what the good life is. Trying to help the reader understand what is the good life and how does it compare to your definition or your view of the good life. And what he, I think, tries to do here in this passage is to call the reader to embrace their mortality. Embrace your mortality that our life is here, but a moment, and then it is gone. At a time that we do not know. But as long as you live, you still have some hope of a positive outcome. And if we would be wise, we would heed the wisdom of the preacher. And this is made in contrast with the deadness of death. 
And again, trying to persuade the reader of the good life, he calls the reader to consider dead or death, the deadness of death. The dead do not know more of life because having not embraced their mortality and allowed that to pave the way towards wisdom living, the dead have no more life to live. The small flame on the candle of their life has been extinguished, and there's no more life. And in death, there's no more to know. There's no more to learn. There's no more to experience. There's no more to enjoy. The train has picked you up and has dropped you off, and the train is never coming back. The dead have no lasting legacy. The memory of them will be a distant memory until finally it no longer be a memory. It will seem as if you never existed. The passion of the dead is also dead. The fires that consumed their life, the things that they gave themselves to pursuing in the life that they did have, those fires of passion are extinguished by the waters of death. They have no more share in the living. Once you cross the line, there's no returning. And it points to a total separation from the land of the living. And in all this, it's intended to get us or get the reader to question, what is it that you value? And this is helpful for us when having conversations with unbelievers. Consider what are the things that you value. Consider what is your life. Consider what are the things that you treasure most. What is your life? What is the meaning of your life? Have you considered death and what comes after death? And while the preacher at his time could only expect that the unrighteous and the wicked can expect some kind of negative outcome, we, understanding the scriptures, understanding the gospel, understand that it is much worse than just a negative outcome. Jesus says in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So even now, or if you're here this morning, you don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ, haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior, Jesus says that even the wrath of God hangs over your head this very morning, waiting to just fall upon you on the day that God calls. And the only way to be saved is by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. And the scriptures teach us that the outcome is that when you trust in Jesus as Savior, that you will receive eternal life. That you'll be in paradise with Christ forever and ever. But the alternative is to live in eternality, experiencing the judgment and the wrath of God. And so we consider what is our life for? We consider how much time we have left. Right? And if you haven't trusted in Christ, you might consider, well, I just don't believe. I just think that you go on to the next life, whatever that looks like, and maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, or maybe you just cease to exist. 
but would you really gamble your life in that way? Would you really, are you really ready to take the risk? Would it not be better to live your life now in the fear of God than to take a gamble and not live in the fear of God and find out that the end of your life is much worse than you can expect or can even I describe. But for the Christian, we understand and know that there is much more than a positive outcome. There's a glorious outcome. That even if we will not be remembered in this life, what matters to us is that Christ remembers us. So that even what we do here in this world with our lives, when the time that God has given to us, matter in some way, shape, or form in eternity. Now the preacher has one last thing to say, this time concerning living with the end in mind, or the event in mind, meaning death. Living with the event in mind. So the wise teacher, he's at his time the wealthiest person, wealthiest king that's ever lived, the wisest person who's ever lived. And we read in the earlier chapters of Ecclesiastes that he did not withhold anything that his heart desired. He had the wealth and resources to get anything he wanted. He gave himself to accomplishing different works, to doing many different things. He also had many wives, many concubines. He essentially gave himself to the life of pleasure, and he considered all of these things. And what's helpful for us is that we do not need to give ourselves the kind of life that he gave himself to in order to come to the same conclusion It is our wisdom to heed his conclusion. And his conclusion is that it is all meaningless. That it is all vanity. He says, I've been there. I've done that. Brings no significance. Brings no value. Brings no lasting joy. Brings no lasting satisfaction. Learn from what I have experienced And then he says in verse 7, go, or some translation says, then go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. And then in verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. The wise consider that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God who is above. And they enjoy those gifts to the glory of God. And they also see those gifts as a sign of God's good pleasure. Now, God, in dispensing his gracious gifts to man, is not always a sign of his favor upon the individual. right? Because we actually, in, elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, It tells us that God has given to some wealth and status and all these things, but no power to enjoy them. So in that sense, God gives to some all these gifts as a form of his judgment. 
because he is not taking pleasure in the person. But how do we distinguish the difference? How do we know that God's gracious gifts comes to us because he has found us acceptable through Christ, namely? How do we know that God's gracious gift that he wonderfully provides for us each and every day, how do we know that it is because God has favored us? One way of knowing is by considering your own heart and determining whether or not you have a heart of gratitude. Is the faucet of gratitude always running in your heart? Is there this ceaseless thanksgiving unto the Lord from day to day? Because thanksgiving or gratitude unto the Lord tells us at least two things. It tells us when you are thankful towards the Lord, it's a wonderful reminder to you that God is the one who is a creator and you are the creature. That he is the giver and you are the receiver. That everything that you have comes from God's hand and that anything that you can have or do have today, you would not have apart from God. The, other, the second thing that gratitude shows is humility. It helps to establish us in this position of one who is the recipient. That we are his creatures, that God is God, that we are not God. And so we must always express our gratitude unto the Lord for all that he graciously gives to us. In fact, I would argue that it is one of the defining marks of a Christian that he has or she has a heart that is always thankful unto the Lord. It's so important, in fact, that in Romans chapter 1, it tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us that the wrath and judgment of God comes upon the people or the world because of their thanklessness. And... The preacher would say, if you want to live a good life, enjoy those things that God has given to you. Which in a way is quite strange. This is coming from a man who had everything. He owned everything. He had the wealth, status, honor. He withheld nothing that his heart desired. And he tells us, whatever God has given to you, enjoy those things. As those things that come from the hand of God. And the point he seems to be making is that life is brief. You have only one life. Enjoy God's good gifts. Not in excess, but in moderation. Not with a heart of dissatisfaction, because the heart of dissatisfaction is always in the pursuit of something and is never satisfied, but pursue it, pursue or enjoy God's good gifts with a heart that is, dis- that is satisfied in God. So if you can have a vacation, praise God. Enjoy the vacation. It's God's gift to you. If you have food on the table, that is God's gift to you. Enjoy it to the glory of God. If you can go out and take your family to a restaurant and eat out nicely, wonderful, great. It is God's gift to you. Enjoy it to the glory of God. If God has put wine in your cabinet, have a sip of wine. It's God's gift to you. Do you have friendships that you enjoy, people that you enjoy spending time with? Praise God. That is God's gift to you. Enjoy those relationships to the glory of God. God has given them to you. 
Again, his point is, life is brief. You have but one life, and you don't know how long you have it for. And God has given to each and every one of us certain things so that we may enjoy it to his glory. And speaking of basic things that God provides for us to enjoy, one of the most basic things that God provides to his people is the church. God provides the body of Christ for us to enjoy. And so we give ourselves to loving one another, to encouraging one another, to building each other up, to serving one another. Because the gift, because the church, the body of Christ is a gift for us to enjoy. And in addition to these gifts, the preacher also says, enjoy your spouse. Enjoy the wife whom you love. Because this is a most precious gift. Different translations, it actually has the word vanity twice in this one verse. Which I think is consistent with the original language. So in other words, the preacher seems to be emphasizing, your life is brief. Your life is brief. Enjoy the wife whom you have. Enjoy your spouse. It is God's gift to you. Now, not having a spouse does not mean that you are less favored by God or less loved by God, but it is a gift that God gives to some and not others. And this is a gift to be enjoyed in the brief life that we have in this world. And we are to enjoy it to the glory of God. Right? And so that means being intentional about it. Take the time to reconnect if you don't have that rhythm in your life. Kids are great, but man, it's wonderful to take, spend time away from kids as well. Take the time to be together. Enjoy each other's company because it is God's gift to you because he knows better than you and I understand that life is brief and that life and life consists of many hardships and affliction. And this is intended to be a relief to stress. It's intended to be a joy in the midst of affliction. Enjoy it as God's gift to you. And nobody's going to fight harder for your marriage than you will. In fact, everything in society and culture and the government it's just hates the family, hates marriages, seeks to redefine the family and marriage. But you ought to protect your marriage and enjoy your wife, husbands. And this is coming from a man who had all the wives and all the concubines to his own detriment. Right? And notice what he does not say. He does not say, leave the covenant of your marriage to pursue someone else in order to fulfill your ungodly and pagan passions. Don't break off your covenant so you can give yourself to stupid, licentious living, pursuing those things that you think might make you happy. No, I already did that. I had it all. And I'm telling you that it is meaningless. No, stay faithful to the covenant of your marriage and enjoy your spouse while you have each other in the brief, vain, vain life. Vain as in passing life. Because this is God's gift to you. 
verse 8, it says, Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. This is a call to live a life pleasing to God. That's the idea of being consecrated or separated unto God. You and I have been separated, called to belong to the Lord through Jesus Christ, through our faith in Jesus Christ. And so let us live our lives to the glory of God. Let us, as much as we can, keep ourselves unstained by sin and by the worldliness of the world. Christ has redeemed us through his precious blood so that we might be called unto the Lord, consecrated unto him, to live for him. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies who called you, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jude 18 says, They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So how do you keep yourself in the love of God? By building up your holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has taken you from the barren wasteland of the world and transferred you into the garden of his love. And there's a garden that we are called to maintain, to protect, to nurture, and to cause to bear fruit. Not because we do it to earn God's favor, but because God has already favored us and we do it out of a love for God. So in this way, we keep ourselves in the love of God. And lastly, he says, in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shield to which you are going. Seems kind of counterintuitive because he says, essentially, life is short, so work. I mean, not our idea of living the good life, but this is what he says, work, work well. Work hard. Why? Because there's nothing in shield. There's nothing for you to do there. Now, trying to fill some of the gaps of understanding and knowledge that he did not have at the time, we know that our work and the assignments that God has given us to us here will also be determinative of what our life with Christ looks like. So, for example, in the parable of the talents, God or Jesus gives us this parable to describe to us a way the kingdom of heaven will be like that there will be some who have different talents and their faithfulness to those talents will determine how much more they will receive to be responsible for an eternal life. So then what you do in this life and how you work does matter to the Lord. And this provides us with a better motivation to work well. Charles Spurgeon once said, a Christian sluggard, is there such a being a Christian man on halftime? A Christian man working not at all for his Lord? How shall I speak of him? Time does not tarry. Death does not tarry. Hell does not tarry. Satan is not lazy. All the powers of darkness are busy. How is it that you and I can be sluggish if the master has put us into his vineyard? Surely we must be void of understanding if, after being saved by the infinite love of God, we do not spend and, spend and be spent in his service. 
Everything we do, we do it as a service unto the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So whatever work, whatever assignment that the Lord has assigned to you today, be faithful in doing it. To work diligently at it. To spend your life for the glory of God, no matter what it is that God has called you to. Whether it's a missionary, whether it's as a mom, whether it's as an eight-to-five worker, Whatever it is, whatever God has assigned to you in this season of life, God has assigned it to you. And we are called to just be as faithful as we can. But by way of conclusion, considering what the preacher gave himself to and what he has come to conclude, considering just all that he experienced, all that he gave himself to, and coming to the end of himself and realizing that it is all meaningless and vanity. Considering that, considering what we read in this passage, what we learn is that the kind of life that God, that gives God glory, and the kind of life that is most enjoyable, is the kind of life that is strikingly ordinary. Consider all the things done with his life, all that he gave himself to. And he's not saying, go do this. Go accomplish great feats if you want to live a good life. Go accrue all this stuff if you want to live a good life. Go be as successful and make as much money as you can if you want to, be, if you want to live a good life. Instead, no. He just says, enjoy the basic things in life. Honor God. Enjoy your marriage. Work hard at whatever it is that God has given to you to work at. And if you do that, you will be living the good life. The good life is the ordinary life lived to the glory of God. And what you see in these imperatives is that they really are applied, it can be applied by anyone, by any Christian, at any time, any place, no matter what they're doing, so that the mom can glorify God just as much as the missionary who's given their life in pursuit of proclaiming the gospel to those who have never heard before. And the person who clocks into work five days a week, eight to five, gives as much glory to God as, say, a pastor or a seminary professor. That we don't have to necessarily be doing something extraordinary to live for the glory of God, but as long as you are loving your spouse and living a life that is pleasing to God, and enjoying God's good gifts to His glory, and working well at the assignments that God has given to you, you're bringing God glory. And in the view of the world, that might seem like a mundane or strange or even an ordinary life, but I'd rather have that kind of ordinary life that an extraordinary life given to the life of pursuing pleasure and satisfaction in the world and treasure and wealth and honor and have nothing to show for it in the end and come to the painful realization that it was all meaningless. 
C.T. Studd had once said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done in Christ will last.